Hey, friends, we're opening the phone lines wide. You've got all kinds of questions. We'll do our best to give you solid answers from the Word of God. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, we we try to do this on holidays, special days when you may be off from work and we are live on the air. We open the phone lines, unless we've got a special guest or some major news going on, we'll we'll open the phone lines to give you an opportunity to call. Maybe you normally work while the show is going on and you'd like to call, but you can't. So phone lines are open. It is Martin Luther King Day here in the United States, 866-348-788. Eight four. Uh, in a moment, I want to tell you something really interesting that happened to me. Let's see, two thousand. So, nineteen years ago, on this very day, I'll tell you that in a minute. Again, number to call eight six six three four truth. As long as it's appropriate for Christian radio, phone lines are open. That means any question you've wanted to ask me. That means any clarification you've wanted from me. That means any way you want to challenge me on anything I believe. Go for it. Glad to speak with you today. Before I tell you what happened on January of Martin Luther King Day, January 2000, and before we go to the phones, let me just read a couple of quotes to you. I asked on Twitter, do you have a favorite quote from Dr. King? Chris said this, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And then Martin posted this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Yeah, these are biblically based principles. And we know, (laughs) excuse me, we know that Jesus taught us to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. Paul, following Proverbs 25, urged us to overcome evil with good. He said, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Thereby you'll heap coals of fire on his forehead, which may be an image of bringing that person to repentance. Neil posted this, please be peaceful. We believe in law and order. We are not advocating violence. I want you to love your enemies. For what we are doing is right. What we are doing is just. God is with us. At the center of nonviolence, King said, stands the principle of love. 866-34-TRUTH, never to call. I'll, I'll tell you what happened to me back in 2000 on this day in a little while, but first we'll go to the phone starting in Texas with Sims. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Uh, thank you for taking my call. It is an honor to finally speak with you. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, my question is on Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter, verses 28 and 29. Okay. Uh, where it says, if a, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man will lay uh, with her and shall give, her to, the, give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife. 
because he has not violated her, he may not divorce her all his days. Now, I was looking at this passage of Scripture because I'm going to be preaching on Genesis 34 this upcoming week, which has the, the rape of Dana, uh-huh. uh, Jacob's daughter. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand, when I was studying this passage out, most, a lot of commentators talk about this as, um, you know, basically the man being forced or having to marry the woman that he raped. Um, but there were a few who argued, uh, the Net Bible actually argues this in its notes, that this was actually a con- uh, referring to a consensual act. Uh, and if that be the case, it would be all that different than Exodus 18.22, which talks about uh, when if a man seduces a woman. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the subject. Yeah, so uh, a few things. The notes in the NET Bible are excellent and should always be taken seriously. There's excellent scholarship behind them. So if they say something that seems odd, there's a reason for it, and and you want to dig a little deeper. But uh, a few things. Number one, with the rape of Dina in Genesis, the 34th chapter, God did not want his people intermarrying with the Canaanites. So this was a forbidden relationship something that was not in God's order. And of course, these laws were not yet given. Deuteronomy was not yet given as a law. So it was understandable that Jacob and his sons did not want their daughter to marry this man who had now violated their daughter slash sister. So that's fully understandable. Why then is there a law in Deuteronomy 28? And and just um, looking at the Hebrew, uh, does it refer to uh, a, a violent attack in verse 28. And that, that would be the real question, how to translate the, the Hebrew word tafas. Uh, but normally it's taken in, in terms of something forcible that he does to her, not consensual. So why then is he being punished with having to marry her and he's not allowed to divorce her? That would seem to be rather a punishment on him. Well, uh, on her, excuse me. In our culture, it would seem like that, right? A guy rapes a woman and then now is forced to marry her and can't divorce her the rest of his life. He can't, can't mistreat her. That would seem to be a punishment on the woman. But in the ancient world and in many countries to this day, a raped woman, even though she's not guilty, she's now untouchable. Nobody wants her. Nobody's going to go near her. She's basically consigned to be single, never have children the rest of her life. And that would be like the worst curse for women in many parts of the world and in ancient Israel. So this was meant to be a deterrent against rape, and it was meant to be a protection for the woman that now this man would have to marry her and live with her and care for her, uh, obviously not live with her and abuse her, etc. So this was meant to punish the man and to protect the woman. And that's why the law was given. Now, the father could potentially intervene and say he doesn't want it. But otherwise, this was for her protection. When, when I was looking at this some years ago, I actually located laws in Africa and some other countries where this was still the law to protect the woman who was raped and therefore not to let her be outcast. So it's very interesting. But uh, uh, seizes her, takes her forcefully. That seems to be the most natural rendering here. Okay, and, and that was my initial uh, thought when I first looked at it as well, and I've sort of been thinking about it uh, throughout the day. Uh, one 
quick point of clarification. You yeah, and, and by the way, the, the and NET translation does say, suppose a man comes across a virgin who is not engaged and overpowers and rapes her, and they are discovered. So certainly it's telling you that that's what they understand the meaning to be. They may have a discussion in the footnotes. I'd have to review that to see what they say, but their actual translation is talking about rape. Okay. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, but you're saying uh, from, from what we see in the text here that potentially the father could say, even though it says that the man would have to marry her, the father could still step in and say, no, I don't want you to marry her. But then wouldn't that be him putting his daughter in a bad spot because he, yeah, and, and, and said and other, he would be untouchable? Right. The law was to protect her that this is what would happen. You do have indications in some other passages in Deuteronomy that perhaps a father's will could be involved. But no, the father would want this as well. In other words, this was considered to be in the girl's best interest. As strange as it sounds to us, sir, this was considered to be in her best interest. And that's why the law was given. It's so interesting that culture can be so different that something that seems terribly oppressive and wrong to us is actually considered to be life-giving and protective in another culture. Hey, thank you for the questions, and may the Lord's blessing be on you as you preach and teach his word. Thank you so much. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Eugene in Oklahoma. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you, Dr. Brown, for having me. I appreciate your ministry and everything you do, sir. Well, thanks. Yes, sir. So um, just a quick, uh, you know, leading up to my question, I watched the debate you had with uh, uh, Mr. Tuggy. And uh, it was really, really interesting, a little bit about myself. I grew up in a church where we truly believe in um, the full divinity of Jesus Christ being the God-man, fully man, but yet fully God, as described mm-hmm. in um, Philippians 2. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want the foundation of how I worship to be based upon experiences, but when I don't think about it, and I just, I just open up my Bible and read, and I read about the goodness of God and see His goodness in my life, I'll, I'll, when I begin to worship on my own, without really thinking, I'll just begin to praise the Lord Jesus Christ, and mm. I'm just exalting Him. And one of the things that was so interesting during the debate, sir, the amount of Scripture you provided, especially in, in the book of Revelations, Revelation speaks on Jesus being heavily worshipped as God. Um, and so I, I completely agree, and I can see the open statement of Scripture saying that Jesus will be worshipped as God. And when you see examples in, like, Luke 9, when he healed the man, he began to fall down and worship Jesus. I agree with that as well. But something that has confused me lately is the order of worship. For example, in certain churches, when we begin to praise, I'll hear people say, God, we praise you, or Father, we praise you. And then I'll hear other people say, Jesus, we praise you. And it's like they're making a distinction between the two. And I'm just wondering, or if you could help me understand. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate how, it, Eugene. Do, so, yeah, how do we worship? Yeah. yeah, so so the first thing is don't be uptight about it. In, in other words, just like the Father can be called God and Jesus called Lord, but Jesus can also be called God and the Father be called Lord, it's nothing to worry about. When, when I'm praising God, am I consciously thinking more of the Father, the Son, the Spirit? Am I just thinking of God generically? Unless I'm very specific in my thinking, like, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for shedding your blood on the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for having mercy on me and saving me, right? Unless I'm speaking to him in that way, I'm just praising God generically. If I'm pouring out my heart in prayer, 
Jesus directed us as a pattern to go to the Father because he wants us to be leaning on, on our Heavenly Father and having that father-child concept and relationship and the Father being the source of all things and the Son, the one through whom they come and the one that reveals the Father. Then I, I may be consciously talking to the Father, but I'm, I'm not, because, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, I'm not making a conscious distinction all the time. And if you have one person in one corner of the room saying, Jesus, I praise you, I love you, and another person saying, Father, you're wonderful, we're praising the one God, and we're just praising Father, Son, or Spirit accordingly. And in the book of Revelation, it goes seamlessly from praising and worshiping the, the Lamb to praising and worshiping the Lamb and God the Father, and it's all it's all utterly seamless. Stay right there. Just got one more comment. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, I, I think this is the Dr. King quote that I've used the most from a message he gave when he was 36 years old. And it's interesting, Aaron, who posted it on Twitter, when I said it's the, the quote I've used the most myself during the break, he said, yeah, he heard it on the radio show in the past King said this, a man dies when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. To me, it articulates and ties in with what Jesus himself said, that if we save our lives, we lose them. But if we lose our lives for his sake in the gospel, we find them. Phone lines are open today, 866-34-TRUTH on Martin Luther King Day. So Eugene in in Oklahoma, it is an error if we confuse the persons, meaning, Father, I pray to you, Jesus. And I've often heard people doing that. Mm -hmm. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. We understand that. Some people can be sloppy in praying and in that sense confuse the persons. But if there are normally my prayer is directed to the Father. But there are times when I cry out to Jesus, and it's very natural to cry out to Jesus, and there are scriptural precedents for it. What I found really odd and quite unfortunate in Dr. Tuggy's presentation was he acknowledged that there are a number of times in the New Testament where Jesus is called God. He acknowledged that Thomas cried out to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and he said, yes, I worship Jesus and sometimes pray to him. To me, that's either idolatry or like Catholicism, praying to the saints. For me, only one has my heart in this way. And when I'm praising Jesus, I'm praising God. So what you said, even though we don't want to base our theology on experience, yet your experience confirms what our theology says, that as we praise Jesus, we're praising God, not simply praising him brings glory to the Father, but praising Him is praising God, and it's it's only God that's worthy of that kind of praise, that kind of adoration, that kind of wholehearted devotion. I've talked to religious Jews about this, and they said their hearts are undivided. 
Only God do they love in this way, in a way beyond how they love their own family. Only God do they worship in this way. And I said, yeah, when I worship Jesus, I'm worshiping God. My heart's not divided. Otherwise, yes, it would be. Otherwise, yes, it would sir. be. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you for your answer. And another thing I found interesting, just real quick, is that uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. And I just wonder, maybe that's why I tend to naturally pray, praise uh, the Lord, is because the Holy Spirit is called to point directly to Jesus. So I wouldn't be surprised in amidst times of worship, Jesus is typically exalted, because I, I see that as being scriptural evidence. Yes, sir. What's the work of the Holy Spirit. So thank you for your time, Dr. Brown. I You're very you. welcome. And you have a good day. Thanks. God bless you. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Jeff in Las Vegas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How you doing, Doctor? Really well, thank you. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to make a quick comment. You've got a very good audience on the the, the, uh, the chat line. I don't know if it's up today, but the guys on there, the women and the guys, really good. They know a lot. Most Christians don't know as much as those on the on the chat, but I'll give you credit that the ones that are on there are, are know a lot more than the average Christian. But Deuteronomy 6-4 says, uh, Hero Israel is the Lord are, is one. I've heard your arguments. I've, I've been taught under the best Bible teachers in the United States for the past 30 years myself. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. I've read it. I've read it in the original, whatever. I mean, we could, you could go back and forth. I've heard your argument, but I would just say Christians, the normal Christian, like the average Christian, they don't really believe the Trinity. Or they, they say they don't believe, they don't necessarily say they don't believe it. They don't understand it. They accept it, regardless of if they understand it. And I think, as the Tanakh does declare, the Lord is one. He's not two, he's not three, and if you're going to worship Jesus, you know, over here, then, of course, that's idolatry, and that's what that's what the Jewish Tanakh teaches, that's what rabbis and Jewish people believe. Yeah, but that's, that's, ser- yeah, that's really serious misunderstanding of the passage. First, Deuteronomy 6.4. Yeah, but, but let, me, let, me, let me explain. First thing, Deuteronomy 6.4 uh, as the JPS translation has it, and it's probably best translated, Shema Israel Adonai Lahena Nachad is Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. In other words, that one alone. There, there are not many Yahwehs. One in this city, one in that city. We don't worship other gods. We worship Yahweh, the Lord alone. Right. That, and if you look at the whole emphasis of the Hebrew Scriptures, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about is his nature triune or complex unity or is he manifest in intense spherot, these emanations, etc. No, it's, it's saying he alone, that one alone is our God. And there are not multiple Yahwehs and, you know, regional Yahwehs, multiple Yahwehs, nor do we worship any other God. If someone wanted to say, no, the best way to translate it is he's, he's one. Again, that Hebrew word echad, the first time it occurs is Genesis 1, that there was day and right. night. Uh, one day, all right, then the next time it occurs is Genesis 2, that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, will be one flesh, so the two will be one flesh, and then it occurs after that in in Exodus, like the 35th chapter with the building of the tabernacle, where all the many pieces are echad. So even even there, it doesn't tell you anything about essential nature. It just says it's, it's one, 
and not many. So we believe in one God, just like there's one day consisting of day and night or evening and morning, just like there's one couple consisting of man and woman, but they're one flesh, just like there's one tabernacle of many parts. There is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, to worship the Son is is to worship God. I I know that Christians believe that. I'm just saying not only that, that problem, but God becoming man, impossible according to the Jewish Scripture, and impossible of all the Jewish teaching in the past. But it's not. It's not years. so. But it's I'm not sure so. Could... But Jeff, it's not. It's not true. God. God appears in human form in the Hebrew Bible. How it's can you not say that it's strong? I've read all the passages. It's of not course, it's strong. strong. Genesis but eighteen. It's Genesis not. eighteen. It doesn't say Jesus. It doesn't. It says Yahweh. You should know that, that sir. You, you can read Hebrew, Jeff. You read Hebrew. No, I'm learning Hebrew though. All right. But so if I you read don't... it, read it in Hebrew. It's indisputable. Yahweh appears in human form, and he and he eats with Abraham, and he talks with, he has extensive conversation with Abraham. He but ends up leaving. Deep, but, but it's another leap to say that these uh, these appearances are Jesus. You just say there's no might... leap at all. That's the only logical answer, sir. The Son well, is the one. It, I didn't say Jesus. Jesus. It's the Son. Je- Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Jesus. Here, tell you what. I got a bunch of calls, and I want to do my best to get to everybody. So, unfortunately, it's, it's not time for you to teach our audience, but you're, you're in serious error here. When, when, when you say you've read it in the original and you're just learning Hebrew, that's misleading, okay? Because you, you can't read the Hebrew and decide on your own. That'll take years and years and years and years and years of careful study with the text to be able to read it on your own and then interact in, in a scholarly way with other translations and things like that. But, but sir you have not digested whatever I've shared. You may have read the answers, but you obviously haven't digested them. Even to say that wasn't Jesus, Jesus refers to the son of God in human form who was born at a certain point in time. But the son is the one who reveals God throughout the old Testament. And that's why he says in the new Testament, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's why he says I'm in the father and the father is in me. That's why in the Hebrew Bible, he's called He's called El Gibor, Mighty God, in, in Isaiah 9, 6, 9, 5 in the Hebrew, 9, 6 in our English translations. And then Yahweh is called Mighty God in, in 10, 21. How can that refer to a human being unless that human being is taking on earthly form? And how could God remain enthroned in heaven and invisible and yet walking on earth and seen unless he's complex in his unity? So the Father, the source of all things, remains hidden in his glory. No one has seen him or can see him. The Son makes him known and walks among us. The Spirit works among us invisibly to draw attention to the Son who glorifies the Father. It's beautiful and wonderful. And I'll debate it with any rabbi with joy, just using the Hebrew Bible alone, not even using the New Testament, just the Hebrew Bible alone with joy. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Jeremy in Montana. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you, Dr. Michael Brown. I appreciate you taking my call. Uh, You're welcome. I'm looking, forward, I'm looking forward to your new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Now, I know um, you debate preterism, and I know you debate um, replacement theology. So I just was hoping you could kind of give an overview of what you believe um, in terms of eschatology and why you believe it, and I'll get off the phone and listen to your response. 
Sounds good. And Jeremy, uh, thanks so much for asking. Here's what I'm going to do, because I've just got a minute before the break. I am going to answer your question on the other side of the break. All right. So I'll tell you about Not Afraid of the Antichrist due out March 19th, co-authored with Professor Craig Keener on the other side of the break. There's a question that Lynn asked on Facebook. uh, How do we square Dr. King being a, a Baptist preacher and yet being a womanizer, of course, accused of having multiple adulterous affairs, he sinned. He fell short. And from what I understand, he was grieved over that privately and sought to, to, to change his ways. I'm no expert on that, but it's widely acknowledged. Yes, he was a womanizer. Yes, that, that should have disqualified him from being in ministry on a certain level. No question. Did God use him? As a flawed man, did God use him to have a great impact on our nation? Yes. And for that, I'm grateful. And I hope he died in a healthy relationship with God. But yeah, that was a very, very serious flaw, fault, sin, transgression in his life. And in no way do I treat it lightly or excuse it. Thanks. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I, I cannot believe that in just 10 days, Relief for Israel. Yeah, amazing. And uh, just a couple days ago, two more folks were able to join us. We were o- able to keep space open to the last minute. So two more folks able to join us. Can't wait to lead that tour. By the way, on the odd chance that you can be free February 1st through 10th and have the funds to join us. You can still sign up today at our website, sdrbrown.org. Maybe something just canceled out for you or money dropped in your hands, but I can't wait to join our tour group there. If you can't make it this time, hopefully another. 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines are open on Martin Luther King Day. So January of 2000, on this very same holiday, I was getting ready to preach in Houston, Texas for a colleague. And on this particular day, I was writing my book, Revolution, The Call of Holy War. And as I was writing the book, I was writing a chapter on liberty and freedom and was overwhelmingly gripped to write by the hour and and was grabbing powerful quotes from Dr. King great quotes, insightful quotes, and incorporating them into the chapter. And when I finished writing, then I was doing something else on the computer, and I thought, oh, it's Martin Luther King Day. I had no idea, and I didn't have the holidays on my calendar on my computer. So just afterwards, like, oh, I didn't even realize, because I was just getting ready to preach that night on a Monday night meeting for a friend. Anyway, it was interesting. Okay, a question from one of our callers about a new book, coming out with Professor Craig Keener called Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Just a quick background. My book, Donald Trump is Not My Savior, an evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. That came out in October, about a week or two before the midterm elections. That came out. Of course, that is available. Then uh, two weeks ago, my newest book, The Power of Music, God's Call to Change the World One Song at a Time, that just came out. You can still get that on our website together with interviews we did with different uh, worship and music leaders. 
Of course, then order it anywhere else, your bookstore, get it at your bookstore or Amazon, etc. Then uh, March 19th, a book co-authored with Craig Keener, Professor Keener, one of the world's greatest New Testament scholars, not afraid of the Antichrist, why we don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. We don't write the book bashing other believers. Both of us got saved in churches that hold to a pre-trib rapture. I was just preaching in Italy at a church that holds to a pre-trib rapture. Some of my best friends and ministry co-workers hold to a pre-trib rapture. We've just never argued about it over the decades. So this is not something I'm going to divide over, and hopefully you won't divide over, but we just did our best to open up Scripture. So the viewpoint that I hold to is historic premillennialism. And as best as we can tell, this is what was held to by the earliest church. We do believe that we will go through tribulation hard times, that that's characteristic of the, the entire era in which we live from the cross to the return of Jesus, that tribulation, great tribulation, all types of satanic attack and human attack. These are things that we will experience in this age, but God is able to preserve us and keep us in the midst of it. That's why we're not afraid of the Antichrist, however monstrous he may be, because our ultimate trust is in the Lord. And many believers that have suffered horrific persecution and extermination and torture and genocide and imprisonment and every imaginable hardship, they, they've, lived, they've had their great tribulation. In any case, uh, I do believe that at the end of this age, Jesus is literally coming, that he did not already come spiritually, and there's not a physical second coming. Jesus will appear, but it's one event. When he appears in the clouds, we will be caught up to meet him. The dead in the Messiah will rise first. Those alive will be caught up to meet him. We'll ascend together with him uh, to, uh, to meet, and then he will come down and set up his kingdom. So rather than Jesus makes an invisible appearance right before the tribulation, secretly raptures us out, we go to heaven, basically celebrate for seven years as all hell breaks loose on the earth and Jews are slaughtered, etc. And then at the end of that, we return with him. No, We'll see him in the clouds. We'll be caught up together with him, and we will descend with him as he takes vengeance on those who don't know God. He will then set up his thousand-year kingdom based in Jerusalem with Israel as the lead nation. We believe all believers at that time resurrected in the Messiah. So a thousand years on the earth where the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the seas and the wolf lies down with the lamb and they won't do harm or, or war, etc. At the end of that, Satan released He's been bound for a thousand years, released for one last time to deceive the earth. People will willingly follow him, even though they've been in the presence of God. Many will willingly follow him. At that point, they and he will be destroyed, and we enter into the eternal age, new Jerusalem, new heavens, and new earth forever and ever. That's how I understand it. But we, the believers, will be resurrected with bodies that will never perish or fade when he returns, not after the millennium. That's as we understand. Again, the book will be available March 19th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon if you like. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Michigan. Spencer, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you very much for uh, taking my phone call my question. You're welcome. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, um, Jesus when he said, I did not come to abolish the, the law, but to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I am basically asking because of, uh, um, as far as even the dietary and food laws, uh, if 
since that's something that Jesus actually followed himself, mm-hmm. eating kosher or uh, tehor, if that's something that, uh, I know that it's not a salvation issue, but it's something that's more, I think, it could be something done in honor of. Is, is that correct, or am I off on that? Well, no, you're, you're not off to say that if you feel that you can honor the Lord by keeping the dietary laws. And by the way, the word for ritually clean is, is tahor, but good shot at tahor, that. Tahor, I pronounced yeah. it incorrectly. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> Trust me, I, I mispronounce words all the time. Thank okay, you. So, Thank you. So, so number, number one, uh, Jesus didn't say in Matthew 5, 17, don't think I came to abolish the law. He said, don't think I came to abolish the law, all the prophets. So he's speaking right. about yep. bringing to fulfillment everything that was previously written. He said he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, right? Okay. Now, yeah. so that's first thing. Second thing is, what did he do as far as sacrifices and offerings? Did he abolish them or fulfill them? I, I see what, you, what you're saying. I would say he, he fulfilled Right, he fulfilled them by being our final sacrifice. Right. So we have his blood rather than the blood of sacrifices. But in other words, that, that's a major chunk of the law. It's something sure. we no longer practice, right? Sure. Okay. Right. He takes the the biblical calendar, like Passover, that's when mm-hmm. he dies. Unleavened bread speaks of our cleansing. Then first mm-hmm. fruits when he rises. And then the the calendar, the the fall calendar hasn't been fulfilled yet. He returns with That's the sound right. of the trumpet, feast of trumpets, yes. brings atonement to Israel, then the ingathering of the nations, the tabernacles. So all that to say, some of it has been fulfilled. Some of it mm-hmm. is yet to be fulfilled, right? Sure. And all of it, he takes to a deeper spiritual meaning. Now, when it comes to the dietary laws, he only gave those to Israel. He never gave mm-hmm. those to the nations and nowhere right. in the new Testament are they given to the nations. So nowhere right. do, is the church commanded to live by them. And he even opens up for us in Matthew 15 and Mark seven, not that you should go out and, and eat pork necessarily, but that what you eat doesn't defile your spirit, but rather what comes out of your heart, that's what defiles mm-hmm. your, your inner being. So even if let's say I was on a gospel mission and and someone served me pork, you know, in some tribal village. Well, you eat it because you understand it doesn't actually defile you, and it's right. more important to practice love and reach them. So sure. all that to say, if you said, well, God, you gave them to Israel for a reason. So I just mm-hmm. want to honor you by abiding by the dietary laws. That's fine if you do it. The problem is it's still difficult to identify a few animals in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Even in Judaism, yeah. there's some dispute, which is why some things are more widely banned. And then, Like salmon, right? Uh, well, uh, no, that, that would be a, in a different category in terms of okay. questionable on the list. But, but put it, putting that aside, the, the, point would be, the point would be, the problem is you might think, well, what about this law? What about this law? What about new moons? What about... And before you know it, you got yourself all bound up in a tiny right. knot. So if you feel the Lord lays it on your heart and it's an mm-hmm. honoring thing to do or to tell a Jewish person, hey, that's just my way of you know, standing with Israel or identifying with Israel, fine. Mm-hmm. But be careful not to look at it in terms of mandatory, obligatory, right. making you more spiritual. And, right. it's cert- and certainly when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill— uh, he was not, therefore, laying dietary laws on the church and saying that. Quite the opposite. All right? Mm-hmm. 
Yep, because I didn't even see that in the Jerusalem Council. A whole lot of it mentioned this. Exactly. Quite, yeah. Yeah. Quite the contrary. Okay. Don't burden folks right. with that. All right. Thank you, Spencer. Hey, thank much you very much. It. By the by the way, I am right now working. Speaking of books, on a major revision and update to my 1992 book, "Our Hands Are Stained with Blood." By the grace of God, it's be, become kind of a living classic. All glory to the Lord. And it's never gone out of print, been translated into many languages. And of course, all the spiritual content remains utterly current and the historic content utterly current. But there's a lot that's happened historically since 92. There's a lot of stuff in the news. There's a lot to update. There are more uh, theological issues that have come up to deal with. So I'm doing an update, some chapters adding page after page after page, sometimes other chapters just changing something a little bit here and there. But I think that's due out the updated version some around August. So I was actually writing about these very things and updating them uh, before the call just earlier today, last night. All right. Speaking of Jewish people, uh, we go to Arkansas. Bro Joe, or is that Brother Joe in Arkansas? Yeah, you got a Jewish-related question. Go for it. Hey, Dr. Brown. I just had one question yeah. um, concerning uh, witnessing to uh, Jewish people. I have uh, one friend who uh, I try to talk to, but it seems like every time uh, I bring up, you know, Jesus, uh, I get the same story that he was just a good moral figure, or, uh, you know, he was a good person before he started to claim to be God or something like that. But they they, they really don't want to look at any evidences, they won't read any books or anything like that. Um, What would be a great way to get people to start Mm -hmm. looking uh, into, you know, Jesus being uh, the Messiah? Yeah, so... So, um, obviously if he says, I don't want to read any books or talk, that's a little difficult. In in that case, you just want to be a friend. You just want to show love. You just want to ask more about his beliefs and pray for him in secret. But if he's willing to say, you know, a rabbi wrote a book, Kosher Jesus, and this other Jewish guy wrote a book called Real Kosher Jesus. Would you read the other guy's book? Maybe. Real Kosher Jesus, I wrote it. Or maybe would you watch a debate with a rabbi and a Messianic Jew? It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on this Martin Luther King Day, 866-34-TRUTH. So, in short, I would just try to be a friend and pray, and if the person doesn't want to get into theological debate, you have to leave it there. But sometimes a Jewish person is willing to, to watch another Jew debate a rabbi because you get both sides. So, if so, say, hey, w- would you just watch one day with me or let me send you a link to watch a, a rabbi debating a guy who claims to be a Jewish believer in Jesus. And if that's the case, we have those debates right on the, the Real Messiah website. It's realmessiah.com or on our, on our Ask Dr. Brown, uh, you, uh, excuse me, our Ask Dr. Brown digital library, askdrbrown.org. Just type in debate and you'll find debates I've had with rabbis. Uh, and remember prayer. Prayer is the greatest thing that, that you can use to pray for God to open hearts and open minds. Thanks for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Sean in D.C. Welcome to the line of fire. Dr. Brown, my man, always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you? Hey, bud. I'm doing good. Thanks, man. 
Great, great. I'm going to be quick. Dr. Brown, um, I'm, I come from a charismatic uh, word of faith background, and through my years of study, I've noticed that we, uh, I'm talking about myself coming from my background, appropriated Old Testament prophecy and in light of being applicable to us being Gentiles. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, I don't think I need to ask your position on replacement theology, but in some cases, why is it that some people feel that we can read the Old Testament, read the prophecy, and somehow, uh, using a term you may be familiar with called narcissus, insert ourselves mm-hmm. into that text yeah. when they're prophetically uh, given to Israel? Yeah, so great uh, and question. Secondly, was there a debate on replacement theology that you would recommend me? I, I know you've done a couple. Is there one you would recommend that I watch? That's my second Yeah, one. so the, I, I haven't done really uh, lengthy debates on replacement theology. I'd love to, if I can get someone that's, that's willing to do it, uh, even if they call it a different name, if they call it a fulfillment theology or expansion theology, whatever, same end result. I have a short debate with Dr. Munter uh, Isak in, that we did in Bethlehem last year. So you can watch that on our digital library. I think if you type in replacement, you'll find that. Otherwise, just search for his last name, Isak, which is Isaac, I-S-A-A-K. So it's short. There was extensive Q&A that I thought really opened things up even more. But uh, it, it is something that's worth watching. And you'll see his perspective. You know, it's all about Jesus and everything is spiritual. And my perspective is, yes, but Jesus confirms the promises. So in my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, I have a chapter called Thou Shalt Not Steal. And what I say is this. You can make spiritual application where appropriate from every verse in the Old Testament, whoever it was speaking to, whatever the subject matter, it doesn't, doesn't matter at all. If, if, it can, if you can make spiritual application, historical account, you know, God saying fear not, and it's a totally different context. But if, if you can make spiritual application to your own life, one of my classic examples is Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every time that rises against you in judgment, you'll condemn. We frequently uh, speak this over ourselves as believers. The Hebrew is plural. It's actually, excuse me, the Hebrew is feminine. No weapon formed against you, feminine, will prosper, because it's, it's talking to the city of Jerusalem. However, I believe that we can make spiritual application to ourselves based on other promises, spiritual warfare, etc. Just don't take it from Israel. In other words, as long as we recognize in context how it's rightly applied and to whom it belongs, great, make spiritual application of it, find edification. The New Testament is frequently quoting the Old Testament in that way because it's all God's Word. It's, it's all equally the Bible and applicable when rightly treated. So the issue is if I steal it from Israel, that's the problem. If I, mm-hmm. if I take it, so a, a promise where God says to Joshua, every foot, every place in which your foot treads, right, will, will um, uh, you know, that's yours. And we, and we feel the Lord gave us that promise, you know, for our neighborhood that's, a, you know, drug-ridden, gang-ridden, that we're going to march mm-hmm. up and down and pray, and God's going to give us this neighborhood, and many drug addicts and gang members are going to get saved. Okay, great. Just don't take the land from Israel in the process. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> yep. Okay. God bless you, man. Always a pleasure talking to you, sir. Bless you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. All right. 
three, four, truth. Let's go to Pete in Texas. Thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, hey. Call. Yes, sir. Um, I'm calling in regards to the scripture. I just kind of wanted to know what your stance was, where it says, uh, you know, Israel is my person, even my person. Or Israel is my son, even my son. That's my call. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Tell you what, Pete, it's really, really hard to hear you. And just in respect to my listeners, because I get a louder fear in my ear, so I can hear you better than them. Exodus 4.22, God says of Israel, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and then tells Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve in the wilderness. So, number one, Israel is a nation, is a firstborn nation. The king, the Davidic king, was called the firstborn, meaning the, the one who had supremacy over the others. And then, Jesus in Colossians 1 is called the firstborn because he is the one who has supremacy over all creation. So uh, obviously God's not saying that the first nation that ever existed as a nation was Israel, but Israel as a nation is called his son and his firstborn in terms of having the supremacy. The same with the Davidic king. He is called the firstborn and that he has the supremacy over the kings of the earth. And the Messiah is called the firstborn and that over all creation in Colossians and in Revelation because he is the supreme one over all creation. So it doesn't mean that the Messiah is not the firstborn or that the Davidic king was not the firstborn, but as for the nations, Israel is God's firstborn son. You may have had more to your question, but it was almost impossible to, to hear. So I apologize. If there's more that we didn't get to, by all means, just write to us via our website and we'll respond directly to a further question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Florida. Dylan, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, I, got a, I have a question uh, about uh, a prominent uh, Christian uh, that he got saved and he, he left a uh, secular uh, band, uh, a hardcore kind of heavy metal band, and then he felt God led him to go back to the... Uh, to the band, and a friend of mine just shared this. It's not really new news, but a friend of mine shared it with me recently, and I started watching a video on, uh, I think, on YouTube, and, you know, he feels led by God, and uh, so I started looking up the lyrics, and I noticed that, you know, they have explicit lyrics in the, uh, you know, in what they sing, and to me, it just seems like a no-brainer, like, if you're going to be, uh, you know, a Christian that's going to play, and I'm, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and play secular music, but uh, when you start singing explicit lyrics, and then maybe you want to share the gospel with people afterwards, yeah, um, it seems like you know you're you're, ha- you're having a compromise to share the gospel. And I just was curious. Um, I've even seen, uh, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen a couple. You know, I was even ch- chit-chatting with a YouTube, I think a Christian YouTube channel earlier about it, and another prominent guy on uh, that has these videos on YouTube that's a Christian. And uh, it kind of almost blows my mind, like, how, why, is, why aren't they standing up again yeah. and going, hey, man, you're, you're compromising to spread the gospel. Yeah, yeah, I, I, like, I, I understand. I, it, it would be like if you had some, I don't know, some seductive female singer and, you know, she's stripped down to, you know, her underwear and she's parading around the stage. But, man, you get to reach a lot of sinners if you play in the band, you know, right. uh, could you do it? So first, I, I really appreciate the fact that you didn't mention any names 
because you're asking a, a personal question about a, about an individual here. But I am I am familiar with this. I've read some of the stories. So a few things. Number one, let's not get overly excited when a famous musician, celebrity, athlete, whoever, actor comes to faith. Uh, let's really help them get grounded solidly in the Lord, because that's the biggest thing. Because just because they're famous doesn't mean they're mature in Jesus. And they're still right. just another person. That's that's one thing. I'm not saying this individual is not genuinely saved or genuinely knows the Lord. I'm not saying that at all. But first, let's just remember that there are people that often live in a very difficult, different world than us. That's the first thing. Second thing, I, I know a guy, I've spoken with him. Uh, I won't mention what instrument he plays, but seems to be really on fire. And he tells me that when he travels with the secular band, that he doesn't, uh, they all know he doesn't drink, smoke, sleep around. He said, I go to my, my hotel room. I put on my, my earphones. I worship. I take authority over every demon that's been in the room. I pray over it. It's like, man, that's more aggressive than I am. And when I get to a hotel room, I don't know what to think about it, you know? Uh, and then I watched a video and it's a pretty raunchy band. And there's the guy, you know, playing on stage, not wearing a shirt that I'm thinking, okay, there's nobody looking at him a certain way. So, I, I don't understand. To me, I can't see doing it. To me, that's light mixing with darkness. To me, those lyrics, that band, that's having a powerful negative effect. And even if behind the scenes you can reach people, to me, from my vantage point, and having played drums in a rock band uh, when I was a teenager and then going to rock concerts day and night, my whole power of music book, Power Music Book, man, get everybody, get that book and read it. Understand how powerful music is for good or bad. Get the book, The Power of Music. Yes, I'm urging you and encouraging you to do it. Based on how powerful music and lyrics can be, based on the negative effect they can have, based on the fact that there can be demonic spiritual involvement as well, I could not possibly participate in that setting as musician, singer, drummer, guitarist, whatever, without thinking I'm getting defiled and defiling others. So from my vantage point, I can't see it, but God is his judge.